Let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Father, we now come to proclaim your word that is eternal and infallible and inerrant. We believe that through it you grant to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So by in your spirit, would you tonight challenge us and strengthen us, encourage us, and give us rest for our souls. Use me in these moments as you see fit as a servant in your hands. In Jesus' name and for the sake of this church, I pray. Amen. And amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, if you weren't already there, to Hebrews chapter 13. Jason Meyer, in his book entitled Lloyd Jones on the Christian Life, says the following. He says, either or positions on doctrine and life are a recipe for half-baked Christian living. Why stress head or heart, light or heat, Doctrine or life. All head and no heart would make someone a stoic egghead. All heart and no head would make someone a squishy, shallow sentimentalist. The abundant life comes only from a fully baked, both and combination of head and heart, light and heat, doctrine and life. Later on in that same book, he quotes Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who once said, In the New Testament teaching, we are first of all given doctrine, the teaching. Then we're told that we have to apply that to our personal circumstances. Obviously, if we do not know the doctrine, we cannot apply it. If we lack an understanding of the teaching, we cannot put it into operation. First of all, we have the instruction. We must receive it and understand it. Then we say, now, in light of this, this is what I have to do. And whether we describe this as instruction and application, or theological and practical, or exposition and exhortation, or doctrine and duty, or indicative and imperative, the idea is the same. The repetitive truth throughout Scripture that's constantly communicated by the writers of the New Testament is that who we are and what we believe as Christians should greatly affect how we live in the day-to-day. -day. As a matter of fact, the belief and attitude of the writers is that it will in fact inevitably affect how we live in the day-to-day -day because it cannot do otherwise. And that's the point that we come to tonight in this wonderful letter that we began studying in January. We're on the last chapter. And though the, the transition of the letter actually took place back between chapters 11 and 12, we're going to notice tonight that there is a distinguishable difference here between 12 and 13. 
In chapter 12, if you'll remember, the writer encouraged his readers and encouraged us to run the race of the Christian life, the life of faith, with endurance. Right? To not give up, to, to remain headstrong and to finish well. And last week, we saw in verses 18 and 19 that he, he gave a clear reason why we should and could do that. If you remember, it was there that he said at one time, uh, we were separated from a holy God because of our sin and our unholiness. There was a chasm between us. And we were under law and condemnation. We were awaiting judgment and wrath. But having turned to Christ in faith, all that changed. If you remember in his words, we've come to Mount Zion. Right? We are no longer under law. We're under grace. We've experienced mercy and forgiveness. And we're no longer condemned, but commended. Right? We've experienced forgiveness. Our sins have been atoned for by Him. We've been adopted in Him as sons and daughters. And we who were once, to use Paul's language in Ephesians, we who were once far off and barred from Him have now been brought near and are able to approach right, confidently and boldly approaching the throne of grace. And now here in 13, the writer makes it clear that who we are now affects how we should live. Right? He's, he's going to say basically that the change in our relationship that's taken place because of our faith in Christ is going to change how we relate to one another. It changes how we relate to God, but he's specifically here, he's going to say it changes this new relationship, this different relationship, this right relationship with God in and through the Lord Jesus affects us and how we relate to one another. And he begins in verse 1, you'll notice he says, let brotherly love continue. And it really, it makes perfect sense. Because let's remember where those original readers, what they were facing. Right? In the midst of persecution, escalating persecution from both friends in the synagogue and, and from the Roman government. They were facing the persecution to renounce their faith and to forsake the Lord Jesus. And so, in those circumstances, it would have been very natural for, for them to, to begin to change their focus. So, they would have begun to think more uh, individually rather than corporately. They would have begun to think more inwardly than outwardly. They would have begun to think more independently rather than dependently. They would have been more selfish rather than more selfless. Their vision would have changed. It would have become more myopic and short-sighted. Right? They would have been looking for an immediate gratification. And that would have been an ever-growing temptation within them because their needs had become more pronounced. 
And their knees would have been taking a greater importance than the needs of others. And they would have themselves been attempting to meet those needs by themselves. Again, very natural, considering their circumstances. So he says, listen, part of enduring is letting brotherly love continue. And again, it's, it's, not a, it's not optional, it's not a suggestion, it's, a, it's not even a declaration, it's a commandment. It's an imperative. He says, let brotherly love continue. Continue to love each other. Don't stop loving one another. There are three things I want to point out about this particular command as, as we begin. First, that th- this love that he's talking about that must continue... Again, as I was mentioning to the children, it is a result of a special and specific relationship that they had and we have with one another. What they have with one another in their little church and what we have with one another in our local church. And even beyond that, with other believers in Christ. Our common adoption, as I mentioned to them, our our common adoption as sons and daughters of God, have made us brothers and sisters of one another. How many times do we hear, or do I use the phrase, or others use the phrase, throughout our worship service, brothers and sisters. The common union that we have with Christ unites us together with one another in a way that others don't, into a relationship that others don't have. So it is a brotherly love. And that love is only possible because the Father first loved us. That love is not natural. It's supernatural because it's not possible apart from a regenerated heart. It's a love that reflects the love that Christ has for us. Again, as I mentioned with the children, He has loved us sacrificially and selflessly by laying down His own life for us even while we were enemies of His. It's the kind of love that puts the needs of others before ourselves. It's the kind of love that puts others before ourselves. It's a love that's willing to lay down our own lives for the sake of the other. And and while we are not to exclude Others, and we're not to show partiality or favoritism toward others, there is something, there's something about the love we share between one another that is very different than our love that we are to have for our neighbor because Jesus himself says it is our love for one another that distinguishes us and will distinguish us in the eyes of others as disciples of Jesus. Secondly, it's a love, he says, that we're to let continue. And what does that mean? It's a love that they were going to, they didn't have to learn how to do it because they had already been doing it. It was something that they were to keep on doing. It was something that had already been on display for others to see. And finally, the fact that this command says that continuing is a... To to let continue, right? 
do this, it's an imperative, it means that there is a choice to be made. It is a choice that we enter into. That it isn't, this, this love, this brotherly love, isn't an emotion that is simply felt. Right? Liking and not liking someone kind of happens or comes naturally and doesn't require a whole lot of effort. You either, you either hit it off or you don't. But love, this brotherly love is very different. It requires effort. Because the unlikable are still lovable when we're expressing this brotherly love for them. Right? Again, because it's the love that Christ has expressed to us. And we should express that same. Brothers and sisters, this passage is timely for us. And we may not be in the midst of mounting persecution. Right? We're not facing persecutions from our friends, and we're not facing persecution from the government as these original readers were. But, but our current circumstances are enough for us to heed these words and to hear the words that the writer is writing and that we're hearing this evening. And we ought to hear them with particular urgency. You know, as the duration of this pandemic lingers on and on. And as the consequences of isolation continue to increase, and as the political and social unrest continues to mount, and as animosity for Christians continues to grow, we need to hear these words, let brotherly love continue. We need to continue to love one another with a brotherly love. And, and I also want you to hear these words from Paul. Because as I read these words and I think of you, I hear these words from Paul that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing. So do this more and more. It's been my pleasure to watch you love one another. It's been a blessing and gracious for you to love me and Wendy. We don't need anyone to write to you, and yet the Lord is gracious and is speaking to us tonight through His Word. Let's continue. Let's do that more and more. Not only each other, but outside of our own local church, as I've seen you've been, you have been doing as well. Let's do that in the days ahead. I like the verse from the New American Standard. says, excel still more. Let's excel. Excel still more. Those things. Now, there are countless ways, right? We could, we could sit down and begin to brainstorm. How might we love one another? What does that look like? What are the things that we can do? Uh, how, how might we express that love to one another? But the author provides, I think, four very specific ways in this passage to his original readers. And again, while the context is different, it's still, uh, I believe, very applicable for us in what we can currently do and what we need to do and what we need to prepare to do right, in the days and weeks ahead. There are four that we want to walk through quickly. Uh, hospitality, charity, fidelity, 
and frugality. Right? Hospitality, charity, fidelity, and frugality. Let's look first at hospitality in verse 2. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now for us, uh, hospitality, particularly hospitality to strangers, seem, might seem to be odd at this point in the letter. Why you would say, show brotherly love and then extend hospitality to strangers. But again, this is perfect for his original readers for a few reasons. One, because of that escalating persecution that they were experiencing. And it had taken the form, if you remember from chapter 10, it had taken the form of their property being seized and in some cases destroyed. And so Christians were left with very little to their name. Some had no houses to live in. So this, of course, necessitated a willingness for those in the local church to take others in. And again, it could have been from their own community, it could have been from another community as people were traveling and leaving what had been destroyed, people that had been displaced or dispersed, um, they were coming from, from all different directions. Second, in light of that, traveling itself, in light of that persecution, had become very dangerous. Third, inns at, at the time were notorious for not being really great places for believers to frequent. Right? They, it wasn't a place that they should go because not only were they dangerous, but they're, because of that growing ass animosity that was taking place, but they, they were also known as kind of dens of immorality. So they, they have, in some cases, they housed brothels, and so it was just best for believers not to even come near them. And then finally, as has always been the case, those who were, there, there were those who were taking advantage of the hospitality that was being extended. So there were people that were, that, that would say, you know, stay longer than they needed to stay, or maybe ask for a little more than they needed to ask for, and they were taking advantage of those who had welcomed them into their homes, uh, to the point that, uh, that the Didache, which was a first century Christian handbook, pro provided guidelines for people who were taking others in. Right? Taking them in for the, this amount of time, uh, this is what you are, are to provide. Uh, this is how even you are to respond if they ask you for money. So you can imagine that believers in the midst of all this were a little reluctant to, come, to invite one another in. So the writer needs to encourage them. Right? Continue to show brotherly love. How can you show brotherly love? Be his fellow. Open your home. Invite others in. Those who are strangers from other places. And they, they needed to be encouraged. Provide for your brothers and sisters. Protect your brothers and sisters. Even in light of the fact that you may be opening yourself up to be taken advantage of. And then to provide a little motivation, he shared the story that they would have remembered from Genesis 18 in regards to Abraham. And he says, you know, who knows, as you show hospitality, you may, you may even entertain angels. But Ken Hughes points out, he, he says, he was not promoting hospitality on the chance that one might luck out and get an angel. What he was really saying is, you know, there's a possibility of it happening. And because of that possibility, it indicated how important hospitality was in the eyes of Now, 
verse 3, we have the second way of expressing love, and he says, it's about charity. He says, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Again, if you remember back in our study of chapter 10, there were those who, who were not only displaced, but they were imprisoned. They were being mistreated for their faith. And the, those that had publicly professed Christ, right, they, they would not bow a knee to any other person, to any other organization, to, to the government. They were not going to bend the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. And so they, in some cases, were beaten. They were thrown in prison. And then, of course, the purpose was to persuade them right, to renounce their faith. And the writer says, remember them. Remember. Right? Think about them. And we have the responsibility to come alongside those who are a part of they, He says, you have a, a responsibility to come alongside those in your congregation who are experiencing this imprisonment and this treatment. You need to assist them in meeting the physical needs that they are experiencing right now. Some, and some even went to great lengths to even go, when they had opportunity, to go to the prisons themselves and to go and, and lie down and, and keep others company. And he's, he's pointing out that there are benefits and responsibilities that come with being a part of the body. Right? The benefits are we get taken care of in our time of need. But the responsibility is that we're to go and take care of others in their time. It's a both-and proposition. And this, this mistreatment and, and imprisonment was a very real possibility even for those who were not yet being mistreated and imprisoned. And brothers and sisters, again, we're not at the point in our culture where people are losing their homes or being thrown in prison for their faith, not here in our country. But it's going on around the world. There are a few things that we can consider. First of all, it is appropriate, it is appropriate to expand the call to show hospitality and charity to those outside the Christian community and to be hospitable and charitable to all people. This is a specific call to be hospitable and charitable to one another. We become believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, are the primary focus of His encouragement. And second, we should not only desire, but be ready to help to step in to meet the needs of those within our covenant community experiencing you know, a, a stretch of unemployment, or maybe an unforeseen bill of some kind, an unexpected accident, long-term illness or, or some type of you know, short-term need that can't be met, we must be ready. And this can be done monetarily, it can be done through time and labor, but this hospitality should also be extended even in times where there is a great need, right? because it's in those times in one another's homes, gathered around the table for a meal or a conversation, where conversations take place and and intimacy grows, and knowledge of one another expands, relationships are forged. 
And then third, we must admit that there is, there is an increasing hostility toward Christianity and Christians today, even in our country. There are those who own those Christians who are attempting to run their businesses ethically and, and based upon principle, uh, scriptural principles, and, and they're, they're experiencing the tough times are, are growing. Right? Pressure is expanding. Some have even lost their businesses and their jobs, trying to maintain that standard that they believe they should. We need to be available to help. And then finally, notice, notice the call to not neglect and to remember. It's a call to not relax. It's a call to not be, be so wrapped up in ourselves and in our needs and in our lives that we fail to see the lives and needs of others around us. Again, it's to, to, to make sure to maintain that outward that outward gaze rather than, rather than the inward focus. We don't want to lose empathy and sympathy for those around us. We, right, when we see our brothers and sisters hurt, we, we hurt with them. And we need to come alongside them. We need to desire to meet those needs and do so. Well, in verse 4, we have the third example. And that is fidelity. Verse 4, he says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So at the time of the writing, the the writer was battling a couple of extremes. One was uh, self-denial, and the other, uh, the other end of the spectrum was this lack of restraint. Um, for those in the self-denial camp, they believed that to be celibate or to remain unmarried was a, a it puts you in a place of being super spiritual. And then, of course, those who were unrestrained uh, in that unrestrained camp, uh, marriage was irrelevant because it got in the way of simply desiring uh, that, that, or that pursuit, that selfish pursuit of sexual gratification and fulfillment. And the author says, right, neither is an option. Right, neither is an option, neither is biblical. Marriage is a God-ordained institution. And it's a gift to be honored. It, it was created for God's glory and for the good of His people. Sex is also a gift from God and it's to be guarded and protected. And it's to be experienced. The sexual relationship in marriage is to be experienced in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. So, Within marriage, husbands and wives are to remain faithful to one another. And, and any ongoing, unrepentant lifestyle that pursues sex outside of marriage, and any lifestyle of unrepentant faithlessness within a marriage, will result, the writer says, in extreme consequences because God will bring just judgment in those cases. And we read this, and the question I know comes to mind is, how is fidelity or marital faithfulness and sexual purity a means by which we exhibit brotherly love? How does that work? 
And my answer is, due to the threat of marital infidelity and sexual impurity, due to the, due to the threat that it poses to the life and integrity of the church, I believe it makes absolute sense. If you remember two weeks ago in our study of chapter 12, we learned that we had several responsibilities. One, we have a responsibility to do all we can to make sure that no one is able to grow so weary or faint-hearted that they don't finish well, that they give up and they stop running. We learned that we are responsible to do all that we can to make sure that nobody develops bitterness and becomes rebellious toward the Lord. And, and we're to make sure that that bitterness and re rebelliousness doesn't take root within the body of Christ. We were also reminded that we're responsible to, to do all that we can to make sure that, that people don't become uh, you know, stubborn and defiant. We're responsible to do all that we can to make sure that people don't begin to pursue and become entangled by sins right, that, that, are, that gratify temporarily, that satisfy worldly appetites, and particularly those that defile the body and the soul, which is very prevalent today. And... Brothers and sisters, I believe that nothing will undermine those responsibilities that we have to one another faster and more, in a more devastating way than infidelity and sexual sin. And I say that because I've seen it happen over and over again in the life of the church. Sins of marital infidelity and sexual immorality are not committed in a vacuum. They don't just affect those within the relationship itself. The damage that's done is not isolated. Because the offenses are against God, there are, they are an affront to the gospel. And they can and many times do irreparable harm individually corporately within the church. The spiritual, physical, and mental, and emotional, and relational strain that they put on those directly involved, and on the leaders of the church, and on the members of the church is immense. And when we fall into those patterns, when we fall into that sin, we're not loving each other. We're not loving the spouse, or we're not loving the boyfriend or the girlfriend, or we're, but we're also not loving one another because of the collateral damage. So for the sake of Christ and His church, and for the sake of our witness to the world, and as an act of brotherly love, we must honor marriage. That means we don't buy in to the world's definition of marriage. We maintain a biblical definition of marriage. We also refuse to adopt the world's pattern of premarital and extramarital behavior. But let's also not forget that another way that we 
express and show and exhibit brotherly love to one another in these particular situations is by coming alongside those who find themselves in the midst of that sin or having committed those sins and making sure that we don't proclaim them or well, we need to be quick to proclaim that they aren't unpardonable sins. People need to hear that there is grace and forgiveness. God has been, is, and always will be faithful to forgive those and to cleanse those and to heal those who repent and turn from their sin because of Christ. And they need to hear that message from us. We must not only proclaim the truth, but express that truth through our willingness to put our arms around folks and to love them, support them, and encourage them in the race that they're running. We must do both. So in light of that, I do want to ask a couple things tonight. I want to ask if any of you are struggling in your marriage today. Are there simple thoughts and desires and temptations that are hovering over your marriage? If so, repent and look to Christ. Are you ready to throw in the towel and get into those thoughts and temptations and desires? Because today is it just doesn't seem worth the effort to stick it out. Let me let me say repent and turn to Christ. Where you will find forgiveness and hope. For those who have already made choices that are contrary to honoring marriage, the encouragement is the same. If you're not married and you've been sexually active, the call is to repent and turn to Christ and find forgiveness and start anew. If you've been unfaithful in your marriage, unfaithful to your spouse, repent, look to Christ, live faithfully from this point forward. There is no sexual sin that is beyond the grace of forgiveness of And finally, for those who have been left weeping and deserted and sinned against due to sexual sin, either premaritally or extramaritally, please hear as well. Look to Christ. He loves you, cares about you, and will restore you. He alone will Finally, verses 5 and 6. The last example of brotherly love is frugality. He says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And we have to remember, back in chapter 10, he had already, he's already praised them. He said this. Right? He praises them for their joyful acceptance of their property being plundered due to the assurance they had that they possessed much more in Christ. 
So they've already shown that they're not clinging too tightly to things and that they've lost those things and they've joyfully accepted that. And then he turns around and says, but keep your life free from the love of money and be content. Why do that? It's because no matter how they've responded in the past, the love of money and the lack of contentment is always lurking at everyone's door. All the time. Every moment of every day. Because the issue, the issue is not what you have or don't have. The issue is the affection for and the placing of hope in what you have or don't have. Someone can have a lot. And they can love it. And their hope can be in it. And so what do they do? It fuels them to pursue it more and more. You know, to get more of it. And to not lose it. For those who have very little, but love what they don't have, and place their hope in what they don't have, it fuels that desire to accumulate. So whether a person is homeless and sleeping on a bench, or a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, the love of money and the lack of contentment are equal opportunity sins. And the end the issue underlying both is a lack of trust in the Lord. And that's why he quotes from Joshua 1 in Psalm 118. He says, God can be trusted. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's your helper. He'll provide. You don't have to fear. And of course, to live confidently in light of that truth of God's word, right, and to place your trust in Him, and not in their money, and to agree with God that what they have is enough. Which is, this is my simple definition of contentment. Agreeing with God that what you have is enough. It was and is a perfect example of brotherly love. And it was perfect, again, in three ways. One, trusting in the Lord and being content with what you have, and not loving money or putting your hope in that, loosens the grip That we have on our money. And enables us to give it away to those who love. Secondly, trusting in the Lord and being content and not loving money also lessens, lessens, L E S S E N, lessens the number and power of the perceived needs of those who don't have money, which would inhibit them from. Taking advantage of those who do. And then finally, all of them, he says, if you will all, right, don't give into the love of money, be content, trust in the Lord, it, it will sustain, it will sustain them in the midst of that persecution because by not loving money and by being content and not wanting more, there, there was no way for them to be manipulated by those who were persecuting them. By threatening to take all their stuff. Right? If, if you're not clinging to that which you have, or some, you know, if someone threatens to take it away, we're going to do all we can to maintain that. And very possibly, 
bow a knee, renounce our faith. And again, if we're honest, we live in a country, and more specifically, we live in an area, a community where the love of money and lack of contentment characterizes the vast majority of people. We have to admit that. No one's exempt from falling prey to both of those things. So, right, the call for us tonight as a, as a body, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is for the sake of Christ and His church, and for, again, our witness to the world, and as an act of brotherly love, we all need to be on guard. To be on guard, to fight and push back against that love of money and lack of contentment, to trust in the Lord, to encourage one another, to trust in the Lord, to rest in His promise, presence, and help. Remember that ourselves, laying it before one another, keeping one another in tune to that truth. We need to agree that where we are and who we're with and what we have is, is enough and is what God has desired for us because He is the giver of all good things. And so what we have is good and right. And so we need to loosen our grips and open our hands and trust in the Lord to both give and take away. We don't need to give anyone the ability to manipulate us by threatening to take what we have because we're so we're trusting in it. We need to not put our trust in anything that can be destroyed by moth or rust or can be stolen by a thief. We, we will love one another as we trust in the one, in Paul's words, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Because how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let us continue in brotherly love. Let's go.